What's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. I am watching Synergy. <laughs> Real glimpse into the life of an NBA draft scout. Yes. Um, what like what are you watching? Can you share that with us? Uh, I'm watching this uh, Baylor. Um, Baylor was in Canada. Uh, basically play against like other team, like other countries' national teams. So they just they like this is one of those events where they just like send a U.S. college team to represent the U.S. So like Baylor was there, so I'm watching uh, some of that. Um, can you take us? This is not where I was going to start things, but it's interesting. Can you kind of take us a bit like through your thought process of what leads to you watching certain games, what you're looking for? Um, what, what you're doing in the off season and kind of as things ramp up towards October. Yeah. Um, I mean, this time of year, I, I'm trying to take as much of a break as possible because, uh, I am trying to avoid burnout, um, which happens every year. Um, so this is the time of year where I have to like try to cushion myself to not like overdo it, but also like, I don't, I don't want to just be like sitting around every day doing nothing. Um, so like if I'm not writing something and I'm you know obviously like we don't write as much during the summer because there's just not as much to cover you know in the NBA news cycles so um you know I just try to watch a couple games every day and you know two or three games on Synergy every day and just like take some notes and as far as like what to watch um you know Synergy is an amazing tool I mean there are obviously you know there are several different platforms that have film access but Synergy is what you know we pay for uh, at SI so uh you know I've been using that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, most of these guys I've seen play before, so I kind of have a sense of, like, who I'm watching. Like, I have a giant database that I'm updating constantly, you know, looking, you know, three, two, three years into the future. So, like, it's not like I'm just, like, guessing at who to watch. You know, I kind of know who some of the guys are going to be already. There you go. All right. Well, I mean, I asked about your process because I think one thing you and I always talk about behind the scenes um, I think is relevant to say as a preamble into my next question for our listeners is that uh, I think we both subscribe to the idea that trusting your own scouting opinion helps a lot in Intel conversations and trying to figure out what teams are actually going to do based off of what you think is even within the realm of possibility. You're obviously logging. I mean, I don't watch, I don't watch shit. (laughs) I watch a couple of games at a showcase of, of Dyson Daniels and, I see what I see when Gonzaga plays St. Mary's in the Western Conference Championship game. Um, so I do think um, it's important for guys in your in your position who are covering this all year round to be able to back it up. And I think, uh, I don't know, you got – I, I want to fluff you up here. Jeremy Wu, for those who don't know, NBA Draft Insider for Sports Illustrated, correctly mocked 29 of the first 30 first-rounders this year. It was 28, um, I think. 28. Sorry. 28. I should have been 29. Um, I made a mis- I made a bad change at the last minute. Can you can you peel back the curtain and tell us about the bad change or no? Yeah, I can. I mean like I I I don't remember exactly. I think it was like basically this is very very like minute info that most people are going to not care about, but um I think it was like I had Walker Kessler at 31, and I had Nemhard at 24 to Milwaukee, and then I had Bochamp at 25 to the Spurs. What I wanted to do was put basically, you know, with, you know, I was trying to get this update out, and it was, you know, Bochamp, Marjan Bochamp went 24th. I was going to move him to 24 and put Kessler at 25 and then Nemhard at 31 because Nemhard ended up being the 31st pick. 
The reason I didn't do it is because um, I had the Spurs taking Jalen Duran at nine, so I wasn't going to give them two centers, even though I could have, because I thought, you know, someone was going to get traded. But, like, you know, that didn't end up happening regardless. So, anyway, had I done that, even though the logic would have been faulty, I would have had two more picks on the dot. Um, so, that's sort of the, what happened. It's not a very big deal. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think – Look, look, one of my one of my objectives on the show is to always be peeling back the curtain as much on our yeah. process as we do on the team side of things. So I think for any draft heads in here listening later, that would be very interesting to them, how you actually put together the mock and, and which pieces of decision-making leads to you actually placing someone here versus their general range versus a specific man right. of the team. Well, yeah, and it's it's funny because the, the whole chain reaction of that was also like, look, if we – um, if basically like that, the main swing point in the draft last year's draft to me was the Portland pick because I was actually yes. surprised they took Shaden Sharp. You know, I knew it was so between was him and I knew it was between Shaden and Dyson Daniels, but I didn't know which one it was going to be. I didn't think Portland was going to take Longview. I thought they were going to take Daniels. Um, but if I had basically if I had had them taking Sharp, then I would have had Daniels to the Pelicans. I would have had Sohan to the Spurs. Then I would have had Walker Kessler going like twenty five, right? So if that happened, I ended, I would would have wound up with like four more picks on the dot if I had predicted that correctly, right? It's just it's funny. It's all it's all connected. The more you kind of like dive into it, not, but again, it's like when I when I do the mock draft too, I'm not, um, you know, it's always nice to get stuff right. But what I am more concerned with is having like a good flow of information in the mock. And if, you know, if anyone in here has ever like read one of my mock drafts, like. My hope would be that, like, the day after the draft, you can go back and read it. And even if I didn't nail every pick, that the logic, you know, behind explaining, you know, what people are going to do, like, all the intel in there, I want that to be, you know, fall in line with what's going to happen. Because to me, that's really what the job is. Like, you're not going to get every pick right, but the job is to, like, take a bunch of info and then distill it into something that people can understand. um, And, you know, basically be able to, like, shed some light into what's happening um, behind the scenes. So, and I was satisfied with how that worked this year, for sure. I think a lot of covering the draft and, and reporting on it and figuring out what's going to happen is really, uh, really dependent on like specifically finding the the exact pivot points like Portland at seven or Sacramento at four that are a real legitimate spots for for potential change, potential disruption to the flow of things but also spots that teams in the NBA don't know what's going to happen because yeah. that's where teams are trying to actually spend, at least from my perspective, a lot of their work figuring out contingency plans. Cause you know, a lot of the draft it, it, from, from my, all my conversations over the years, it sounds like, and we're grossly oversimplifying, but like you're trying to figure out what's happening ahead of you to make the most to be able to make the most informed decision when you're on the clock with only five minutes ticking. Um, and Portland or, or Sacramento for like you and I spent a lot of time talking about this behind the scenes. I think we even talked about it, um, you know, publicly about how we both always seem to believe the Intel that Keegan Murray was going to be going to sack at four. Um, so that to me, never seemed like as big of a pivot point and Detroit, you know, there was talk about the Pistons potentially taking Jalen Duran at five, um, especially, or, 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 you know, just trading down altogether. 
being that you know he was clearly a, a player that they were coveting and that Intel had gotten around to to rival teams. To me, seven in Portland was really the one big question mark to start everything that I, like you said, I mean, we, we kind of narrowed it down to Dyson and, and Shaden, but I was going back and forth every other day, honestly, every couple of hours, which way I thought it was going to go. And I really thought it was going to be Dyson once the draft came up. Um, so it, those are the, I mean, is there, is there another, or I guess why we'll start there. Why did, were you uncertain? And why did you think it, why did Sharp surprise you there? Yeah, um, I mean, look, I, I think, and you and I have talked about this, but, like, I think Portland just being in sort of a weird um, sort of transition state, you know, with Lillard getting older but still being under contract and them, you know, trying to dictate a direction, um, you know, with him, with, you know, whatever resources that they have, um, you know, that's kind of hard to handicap, right? It's like, you know, if I'm them, like, again, part of it, too, is, like, when I'm projecting picks, it's like I – and putting my GM hat on and it's like, well, if I were them, like, what would I do? Right. And if it were me, I probably would have taken Daniels. Um, so again, sometimes that kind of influences, um, you know, how I project at the end of the day. But like, I, I thought the fit there was pretty clean in theory, just because he is, you know, a big uh, defender who can, you know, play a little bit of point guard, which allows Lillard to play off. Right. And, and, you know, knowing that Daniels is, was sort of an off the charts guy in terms of just like, maturity and tangibles readiness he's going to be able to play minutes for new orleans next year um he may not start but like you know he, he's not going to be like lost on the floor right like he's going to be in the game he's going to deserve minutes right like that's a big leg up whereas you know shaden um if you look at portland being you know already having uh anthony simons um who is also uh you know a scoring two guard um you know i saw some duplication there so you know i don't know you know exactly why they did what they did um but, you know, there was enough there to make me reason the other way just because it felt more logical, right? But, again, um, you know, the way that NBA teams think, you know, we, we never know exactly what they're doing, right? So this is not to, like, bash Portland. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just it just goes to show. Like, we, you know, we can only predict so much and, uh, you know, a lot of things hang by a thread. But, yeah, I mean, if I had if I had, had that ride, I would have had, you know, other than the, the Bankero jabari uh, flip-flop, I would have had, like, the whole top ten uh, pretty much to a T, so – yeah, I think for me, I had heard a ton about how Sharp wasn't working out very impressively around around the league um, from a lot of teams through the lottery. And um, a common theme of that feedback was something like along the lines of him appearing disinterested. Um, so that last week, I remember people suggesting that, oh, maybe this was by design maybe he kind of tanked some workouts. And I'm, again, I'm not in the spirit of the title of the show, not reporting that's what happened. I don't think that's what happened. I'm always hesitant to believe that someone tanked a workout. To me, there's so much uncertainty in this process. And you are, you know, if, if you are going even down two or three spots on the board, you're sacrificing a couple million dollars in certain cities. No, no, no. I think, I think that's galaxy burning it. Like I, I think Shaden also his stock was frankly not quite on steady enough footing for him to have intentionally done that. Like I know he worked out for Portland twice, like they, which I think was, you know, significant information. Um, yes. Uh, so but sometimes, sometimes you can overvalue certain pieces of information too. Whereas for me, I heard in that first work, I believe it was that Dalen Terry was kind of the best player in that workout. So but it was valuable knowing that, being that 
that really did help learning that piece of, of knowledge really helped me kind of feel stronger about the fact that Dalen Perry could have been, you know, maybe even a lottery pick, but a top 20 guy. Um, and when he went 18 to Chicago, I said, yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of the guys I believe to be on their list. And that seemed to be his range and that Shaden Sharp, you know, he potentially outplayed Shaden Sharp in Portland helped me with that confidence, but it definitely kind of threw me off the scent on the Blazers. I'll admit that because um, I had heard from, from someone like with knowledge of the situation that Portland wasn't really impressed with him in that first workout. Um, so that type of stuff can definitely throw you off the scent sometimes. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much we want to like reflect on the draft generally. I guess we haven't talked since before that one here, but um yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I think it was kind of an interesting, and I guess, you know, transitioning into also talking a little bit about Summer League. Um, yeah, let's do it. Man, I haven't prepared you know, anything. I'm, we're just, we're just too. Oh, yeah. We're just bringing it. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, it was, uh, I think a lot of teams made good picks. Like, uh, it was a Summer League. I think one of the bummers was that so many of the top guys got banged up. Um, you know, we did not get to see much of Jaden Ivey. You know, Shaden got hurt in that game, that first game, you know, played four minutes and then actually got hurt. Um, Dyson Daniels rolled his ankle in the first half of his first game. Jeremy Sohan was, you know, coming back off COVID and they didn't want to rush him. He wasn't in, you know, conditioning purposes, whatever, didn't play. Uh, so, you know, that was basically four of the four, te- four of the top 10 picks that we didn't really get to look at um, uh, closely, right? Which is a, a, kind of a bummer. But uh, altogether, I mean, I thought, um, you know, all the top three picks, I get, no, I mean, top four picks, including Keegan Murray, we can't leave him out. I mean, those guys all played, you know, had good moments and good, showed good stuff. Even Jabari Smith didn't shoot well, but did a lot of other things really well. So I was encouraged about this draft. Like, um, I think the early returns were, were pretty good overall. Uh, I think Jake is muted, so I'm just talking here. I don't know. Oh, here. How did, uh, here he is, how, here he is. <laughs> how did Keegan um, – sorry, I got a phone call. Um, how did Keegan uh, – impress you up close and personal against and one thing i think is always funny like this is not these guys nba debuts right like they're still playing largely against top tier college talent a couple of guys who are still, who are of that ilk who were in summer league trying to exhibit themselves for lucrative overseas offers right um so it's still but it is an elevated step up in competition especially for someone like chet holmgren playing in the wcc to really get out there with some, some bigger, you know, talent, um, and, and athletes. Um, but how impressive was Keegan to you from someone who was already a big fan of him heading into the draft and seeing him up against this level of talent and on that type of stage with that attention on him? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was surprised by anything with him. Um, like, like my, my thing about summer league is like, ultimately if I'm surprised by something, it's summer league, like having watched so many of these guys so much, it's like either I was like, if, I, if I'm surprised about anything significantly, it means I probably wasn't doing my job <laughs> well, well enough, or I didn't didn't evaluate the guy right because, like, you know, you kind of know what to expect with these guys who you watch a billion times. Um, but with, I mean, Keegan obviously is just so efficient. Um, yeah, I didn't say surprised. I said impressed. How impressed were you? Yeah, I mean, I was impressed. I mean, it was it would have been hard not to be impressed, but like, he, um, yeah, I mean. I'm just trying to think of how to like articulate it. Uh, he's just, he, he, he's a guy who goes in and produces. Uh, he can kind of play, you know, he's more of a four, but the NBA today, it doesn't really matter. He's kind of in between three and four in a way that it works just because he's 
so active. Um, he's the type of guy who can play pretty much in any type of lineup because he's got the size defensively and length where even though he's not like a, you know, he's not going to like step out and lock up, you know, wings. Um, he's a smart defender. He's got, you know, good instincts uh, as a help defender. So it's like, you can kind of throw him out there with anybody and he's going to find a way to produce, which I think is part of why he was so appealing to uh, Sacramento. Like even with Sabonis there, you know, at first I didn't know how that fit was going to work, but now I think about it, you know, Keegan's such a good cutter. Sabonis is such a good passer. Uh, you know, it's going to put a little bit more, I think, you know, strain on their perimeter playmakers, you know, Fox and whoever else. They, you know, I guess Herder is going to be, Herder's a good passer, but they're going to need someone else to help sort of create a little bit off the dribble. Um, you might, you know, I'm curious to see what their offense is going to look like, right? Um, but again, Keegan, one of his strengths is he can, he can kind of play with anybody just because he's so active and smart. Uh, and he's, he's become a much better shooter, too. I think the one thing. If there was something that I was impressed with with him particularly, it was just, uh, you know, how confident he looked shooting it, um, you know, the way he's kind of developed into a more diverse shooter in terms of, like, how he gets it off on the perimeter. Um, you know, he's not going to be, like, an elite three-point shooter from day one, but I think clearly it's a skill that's trending in a good direction. And, you know, having seen him work out a couple of times before the draft, like, I, uh, I'm confident he's going to make shots. So, you know, you factor all that in. Um and, you know, he, he's on a really good trajectory. So I think Sacramento uh, has to feel good about it, you know. I mean, again, you can argue in a vacuum that Ivy, the upside is definitely higher, but nobody ever drafts in a vacuum. That's just not how the draft works, right? So we can always say these things, but they're easier to say than execute a lot of the time. All right, we got four callers in the queue, yeah. and we don't really want to go – you know, we're not, we're not going to go a full hour today. Um, so I want to ask Jeremy one question about the 2023 class, and then we'll get to – Kyle, and work our way through the list as many people as we can get to um, before we burn out. <laughs> um, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours who works for a team this week, and this friend is someone's opinion that we both respect and value. He said to me that from his conversations, and it, and it does it has kind of been reflected so far in the people I've talked to, that at this moment, which is way too early, but at this moment on July 28th, 2022, that everything is trending like the 2023 class is kind of like a four-player draft or has a top four at least right now. I can obviously change. My favorite example, no one ever thought Joel Embiid was going to be the number one pick in the 2014 draft. He wasn't remotely being considered with the likes of Wiggins and Jabari Parker and Aaron Gordon and what have you. So things can happen. But right now, does sound like Victor Wembanyama, Scoot Henderson, and the Thompson twins are kind of leading leading the pack, and Wembanyama is the guy that everyone is you know most excited about with the size and the ability at that type of um you know it just it's kind of a, a rare just physical specimen which is a expression I hate using but that's just kind of where everyone is viewing him and talking about him. Is that off base, Jeremy? Is all these teams like San Antonio, you know, we assume, and Utah, if they do make the Donovan Mitchell trade, and the OKCs of the world, like, are they, are they doing it at a time where the rewards are going to be as advertised? You think? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a four-player draft. Like to to me, right now, it's Wembyama and everybody else. Um, there's like a big blob That's of guys. Fair. That's how I look at it. Um, I think he clearly. Uh, is going to be a game-changing, franchise-changing player. 
Um, like I think, again, as you said, it's early. Um, but from what I'm seeing, it's just like all indications to me is that this is like, um, you know, uh, in terms of like impact here, I don't want to make a direct comparison, but like in terms of what his F-side is, like, you know, Webayama could be like a Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett tier, big, big man in the NBA, right? Where it's like, those I mean, are he big. Looks like, he looks like Giannis in Rudy Gobert's frame with an actual, with a handle and a jump I, shot. I think, I think he's more of a, a true big than that, but like, that's why I'm using, you know, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett in terms of like foundational bigs who could play in any era and have a chance to be really dominant, right? Um, because, you know, defensively, he just, the way that I've kind of been explaining it is just he, he covers so much area uh, just with his, you know, obviously being, I guess he's listed at like 7'3". His wingspan's got to be like 7'8", seven, 7'9". Seven, uh, his feet are pretty good. Um, and he's good not only like, not only is he good sort of retreating and like, you know, pursuing drivers and like, you know, blocking shots from behind, uh, but he's also really good at keeping the ball in front of him. Uh, he's really good at getting out onto shooters and like contesting. Right. So it's like, you know, if you're, when you're that big and you have basically a, you know, 360 degree radius of area, you can cover pretty capably with that length and uh, instincts. I mean, that's, you know, really, really incredible. And like, look, like, you know, if you had any doubt um, about, you know, Chet defensively translating, and then you saw summer league, Chet's defense is going to translate, right? Uh, then, you know, Victor is a different, probably a, a notch up uh, defensively as a rim protector than from where Chet is, right? He's bigger and stronger and, uh, you know, just more unique in that way, right? So, like, I think we're, it's pretty safe to say this is going to be a generational defensive player, right? And so, you know, whatever he gives you on offense is going to be gravy, and it's looking like, you know, his his pull-up shooting is pretty smooth. Like, he's definitely someone who can make shots. I don't know, you know, exactly. I think I think the question of where he is as a shooter and how much he can create off the dribble is going to, you know, be interesting to see. But he's the number one pick regardless to me. Like, um, you know, I'm fascinated to see where he is in the spring, uh, you know, after we've seen him for another year and hopefully he's healthy. But, like, you know, even if, let's say, Victor had a minor injury or, like, you know, an injury and missed two months this year, whatever, I still don't think it would change much. Like it would, anything sort of like a very serious injury would, he's, he's going to go number one. I just, I can't see myself preferring uh, anyone else to him at this, at this point in time. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's an opinion and a stance that's mirrored by a lot of NBA personnel. And I probably right. watched him play like, you know, six or seven games on film. I, I haven't seen him live yet, but I'm going to hopefully go to France in the, in the fall. There you go. All right. We're going to questions. We're going to try to be as fast as we can. Get them all in. Kyle, regular caller. What's going on, man? Hey, how's it going, Jake? Not too bad. Yourself? Oh, not too bad. Um, I'm going to stay on topic today here since we're not talking trades. Uh, question, <laughs> <laughs> question for Jeremy here. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, Keegan Murray. I'm a big Sacramento Kings fan. Um you know, one of the things that I enjoyed watching uh, watching him play in the summer league is he, he's got a high IQ, and and the way he moves around the floor and he can he can see things going on and stuff. I you were saying he's he's a sort of in between a three and a four. I I am convinced that Sacramento shouldn't trade Harrison Barnes. And they should play Keegan at the four and Barnes at the three. 
what are your thoughts on on him being a day one NBA player with the Sacramento Kings? And he's can he step up to the plate and actually make a difference day one for this new season? Yeah, I, I would say I definitely, I, I definitely would expect him to be a starter. Like, I think they drafted him probably with that, you know, that hope. Um, I think you know clearly from summer league he was you know arguably the best. Uh, rookie at summer league. I mean, you know, the guy's ready to play and you're not going to hold him back because of Harrison Barnes, no offense to Harrison Barnes. So like, you know, can they play together maybe a little bit? Does it really matter? Probably not. Cause like, you know, if you're in a situation where you've always got two, six, eight forwards or, you know, in the game, it's pretty good. Like I think the only thing I'd worry about would just be, you know, making sure that you have enough, uh, you know, playmaking on the floor, right. You know, Fox being one of those guys, um, you know, it's a bonus, obviously being a great passer who you can play through a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see what it, what's going to look like in terms of like what looks they're going to roll out. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think Keegan is you know definitely as you said you know really high IQ um, as a person. You know, I've talked to him a few times, and uh, you know he, he's very he's kind of dry, and he's you know definitely the the boring Midwest guy stereotype. He's probably going to you know he's probably going to be there, but like right, uh, he, he's super mature. He's super low maintenance. Awesome, you know, I think awesome guy with no no real <laughs> issues in terms of readiness to to be a pro, right? So like I, well, is, I would isn't Cabell Kingdom the Midwest of California? What do you say? Isn't Cowbell Kingdom oh, the Midwest right. of the California? Yeah, exactly. California? It's a it's a it's a good fit. There you go. Anything else, Kyle? I think that's it. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Yeah, Jake. no problem. You got it, man. Have a good weekend. You too. Uh, Jake, what's going on? Hey guys, how's it going? Can't complain, man. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, I just had a quick comment and then one question to follow it up. Uh, I thought it was pretty <laughs> cool you guys it. were talking about the uh, the uh, sharp uh, workouts in Portland. I actually kind of have a connection there, and you know, from from a player standpoint, one of the guys that got to work out with him. I kind of followed up with him and was like, hey, how did how did Sharp look? And he was like, man, that, that dude's awesome. So must have, I mean, from a player's, you know, competitive standpoint, yeah. must have done pretty well. Yeah, and look, sometimes you, you hear that a player didn't work out well for a team and that's a complete lie and the team and the agent want to throw people off the scent. You know, maybe that's exactly what happened in this scenario because everyone else was talking about it. So maybe he played really well in Portland. They were like, fine, let's just keep feeding that rumor mill. Yeah, and, and it's funny because obviously, like, uh, from an organizational standpoint to a, a player standpoint, like, the views could be very different. You know, there's those guys who are like, uh, quote, unquote, he's a hooper. Um, you yeah. know, sometimes people look at things differently through different lenses. But anyway, just want to share that. Um, outside of that, my other question was going to be um, kind of centered around the Knicks trade, um, you know, yeah. obviously moving from, like, the, the slot that ended up being Usman Jang. Um, do you think, I guess the value, that trade is so insane, but the value of what they got in those picks is probably like, where do you think that stands in terms of value compared to what Jalen Williams might be based on kind of Jeremy, if you have like, you know, pre-draft or post-draft stuff on him, because it doesn't seem like those picks are heavily valued in say a Donovan Mitchell trade. That's a great question for Mr. Wu here. Yeah, that's a good question for sure. Um, Look, I think Jalen Williams uh, is someone I think I probably underestimated a little bit. Um, and I think part of it is I, I never saw him live uh, during the year. Um, I uh, was on the fence about going to see Santa Clara at the um, WCC tournament. I did not make that trip. I probably should have. And I have had, you know, multiple people around the NBA. Like I had someone tell me like, yeah, I, I, 
the reason why he or part of the reason why he thought the hype, uh, you know, never really came with him until late was because, you know, he just wasn't covered enough. And so I, I take some blame for that. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I think, look, you can look at it from the next perspective. Uh, I, I think clearly they weren't. Well, obviously, I think this is a fair thing to say. They weren't thrilled with, you know, what was available to them at at number 11. Um, you know, I think if Johnny Davis might have been there, they might have thought about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it kind of comes down to, you know, the value of those picks. I mean, whether they get the Mitchell trade done or not, you know, if they get the picks, then, yeah, it was probably worth it, right? Like, it's a, it's a choice to opt out. But, I mean, three first-round picks for, for that pick, I think, is still, still you know, pretty decent, you know, way to opt out, right? I mean, and you also have to think about it in terms of the, uh, the opportunity cost of the money that's attached to that pick. Like, I don't know. I can't remember what the I, the slot value of that draft pick is this year, but like, hmm. you know, if you're drafting a player 11, they're getting that money. It's not negotiable. So like, um, also I think part of it was, you know, having the money to pay Brunson. Right. So yep. like you have to look at it as a whole. Um, I think clearly they just value the flexibility, you know, of trying to improve their team more than adding a rookie to what they have. And, you know, frankly, I can understand that logic. Like I don't, Personally, I don't think there was anyone on the board who would have changed the fate of their franchise. Now, you know, knowing, knowing what we know about Jalen Williams now, uh, I think you know he's pretty good. I think he would have, you know, stepped in and been helpful. But you know, the Knicks also they do have a lot of young guards. Um, you know, quickly and Grimes. You know, I think Grimes is in some ways a similar player. You know, probably not quite as uh, gifted like creatively as Williams, but like kind of plays a similar role. And Grimes is good at summer league too, right? So like if you just look at their situation, like I, I can understand, you know, why they did what they did now. Well, will they get Mitchell to kind of like follow through on it? I, I think hopefully, I think that'd just be entertaining to see. Um, but that's, yeah. that's how I think you have to step back and look at it. When the Knicks were, were generally looking to make a big move. Like if it was trading up for Drayden Ivy, like that would have been a big move. If it, if it's doing what they did, like that's a big move. They were clearly trying to make, a big splash and get Jalen Brunson and they are looking at Jalen Brunson as being one guy who's going to attract other guys. So they're thinking star, they're thinking, how do we get back into the postseason perennially with top tier talent? And to Jeremy's point, like, I don't think they saw any scenario that included keeping the number 11 pick and taking someone there once they were on the board. Um, or once they were on the clock, that was uh, that was going to lead them towards one of those big swings that that helped New York, you know, become New York again. Yeah, I think it just sorry. Last note on that point, you know, it's interesting how the timelines and expectations would have changed if they did pull off an Ivy deal as opposed to now being kind of up against the wall with the Donovan Mitchell, if they do pull that off, you know, the timelines and the expectancies are so different. It's just interesting to see that the same front office is like aggressive on both fronts. Well, if the Knicks had Ivy and to the people, to the aggregators out there, I'm going to say this very, I'm going to say this, not wanting to say it, but if the Knicks had Ivy, I would imagine that their talks with Utah would probably be further along. That's a complete, you know, speculative, educated guess, but I would, I would have to imagine that taking him wouldn't have hurt their efforts to go get Donovan. Uh, I just figured they might have just like said, "Hey, we've got Ivy and we've got Brunson. This is what we're going forward with." I, don't, I would didn't even think about them pursuing Donovan Mitchell as well. On top of that, my my thought, everything I've been told, my thought would be that if Donovan Mitchell became earnestly available like he has been. Um, albeit for a very high price, 
And the Knicks thought they had a real shot at getting him without offering too much. And Jaden Ivey had to be included. I don't I don't think that would have stopped them. Interesting. Cool. Thanks for sharing, man. You got it. I mean, Jeremy, am I off base there? Or do you no, I would, I would probably trade Jaden Ivey for Donovan Mitchell. Right. All right, Jason, what's going on? You're back on mute, Jason. There you go. Nope. Oh. Jason, are you there? All right, we're going to bump you, Jason, but come back in. We're going to talk to Tony first. Tony, you can unmute yourself. Tony, are you there? All right, Tony, same thing to you. I'm going to bump you for Jason who's back. If you want to come back in the call, please call in. And if anyone else is listening and wants to make an account and call in and ask us a question. Oh, I think we got Jason. We do have Jason. What's going on, Jason? Yeah, hey, Jake. Sorry about that. Uh, no big worries. fan. Uh, first time calling in uh, on a similar similar topic. Uh, my question for you is how credible do you think the idea is that the Jazz would actually hold on to Donovan Mitchell if they're not, like, blown, blown away? Because to me, like, I know what the reporting is, but, you know, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whatever it was, he was fully unavailable. And, like, given the strength of his draft, as you guys have touched on, and Ainge's, like, historical refusal for a partial rebuild, it seems that, like, it's in Utah's best interest to get him off the roster. Because isn't going from, you know, 10th in this draft in lottery odds to the top four, like, isn't that the most valuable asset they could even get in a Donovan Mitchell trade? Fair point. Um, you know, I really do believe that if the Jazz's asking price is not met, they're not going to move him because there are a ton of people in that organization, from my understanding, who don't want to move him at all. There definitely are people there who want to start this rebuild, though, for sure. So I think it's a situation very similar to Kevin Durant for different circumstances, for sure, but similar in that if no team meets the Jazz's asking price, I do believe that um, Utah will bring him back and they'll potentially even look to make moves around him. Like, you know, I don't think the Colin Sexton thing is going to happen, but that's definitely something that's been talked about in Utah. Um, like moves like that, ancillary moves to try to continue to build around him. I think they could even look to do that between now um, and the start of the season. Definitely ahead the trade deadline, depending on how they play. Um, I mean, that doesn't sound like that crazy of a notion to me. I mean, Jeremy, do you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I would add, I would add that, like, look, I, I mean, I, I think you can kind of see the idea of why they would do it. Um, but, like, also, I just think, like, you know, if you just think about this separately, um, the value they got for Gobert was so good that you got to do it, right? Like, you're never going to get more for him at this point in his career. He's almost, you know, approaching 30. He's a center in a league that devalues centers, and someone's going to give you five firsts or whatever. Like, yeah, you take that, right? So, like, you know, I, I think obviously that's an indicator that they are open to, you know, changing up the team, uh, which I think is something that needed to happen. And, you know, I think they knew it needed to happen. Um but yeah, I mean, like, look, you know, if I were them, I'm, I'm thinking about trading Mitchell, but I think they do have a little bit of leverage to say we're going to wait uh, and sort of see what happens. Because, you know, like, things always change in training camp once people actually see what the team is and then things change again, you know, after 20 games where people have a sense of how good they are and if they need to go get a star, right? So, like, you know, if they want to wait, if they don't like the market, like, I think they are in a position that they can probably do that and not be, like, 
not overplay their hand, basically. That's kind of my read on it. Um, you know, I don't yeah. think the Gobert thing means that ha- they're both both trades are happening now, but I, I do think he eventually gets traded. The other big difference between his situation and Durant's is that Donovan Mitchell did not request a trade. So I think that also is a big key data point for your answer, Jason. Okay, yeah, thanks. I mean, uh, so a quick follow-up, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. How, how valuable would you say going from 10th to 4th is or, or whatever? You know, how, how, like, would you, if you're the Jazz, do you think they would hold out for, you know, an extra one of those, like, Knicks-protected picks as opposed to just saying, all right, we'll do it now because then our odds are getting better? Like, how do you sort of balance? How would you think that would be balanced in their front office? Yeah, well, my opinion is very different from – on its face from anyone on a team side being that I don't have to go through it on a day-to-day basis. But to me, for my objective chair, the move to drop from the 10th best odds to the 4th best odds is overwhelmingly beneficial for a team. I I fully believe in the benefits of tanking. I I wrote a whole book about it, obviously. Um, I think, you know, the reason why it's become so in vogue, why it really blew up in – the 2010s that had enough for me to cover it like a legitimate era of the league. The reason that Sam Presti's going right back to the well right now after he lost his last collection of stars is that to win a title, to actually win, it's you know it's been proven that you need to have a top five guy or multiple top 20 guys in order to get it done. And the easiest route to getting them for the longest time is in the top five of the NBA draft. And if you're a team like OKC or Salt Lake in particular, I mean, Utah, you're based in Salt Lake. Lake. Um, If you're based in Oklahoma City or Salt Lake, like you're not drawing massive free agents on, you know, typical situations anyway. So, like, yes, I fully believe that if you're the Jazz the rebuild, the tank, the full, full, full bottom out is an appealing option. I mean, they, they definitely kind of did it in 2014 um, when that, that was that first year with Gordon Hayward kind of taking the reins and they moved off of Paul Millsap and Al Horford, or not Al Horford, uh, Al Jefferson, excuse me. Um, like, they were right there with, you know, taking Dante X on the five and, like, in, in the mix of things in the, in the tanking world. So I, I think it's got total merits, right, Woo? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, look, the, the the biggest thing about tanking is you can't do it unless ownership is, like, on board with it. Um, and, and I think, you know, probably the, the you know, the, the recent Utah ownership change matters here. Um, like, that's, you know, ultimately, you know, who dictates, you know, how, you know, whether or not you can pull off a plan like that. Like, if you look at Oklahoma City, uh, you know, the reason why they can do it is because they, the ownership is, they trust Presti and they're giving him time to, to do it, right? Like, the fan have been tanking for that long or bad, you know, it's been like two years. They were in the playoffs three years ago, but like, um, you know, it's a situation that, you know, the, the, the stakeholders are on board with, and that's kind of what it comes down to in Utah. But like, you know, I don't know if Danny Ainge necessarily wants to tank knowing his history. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's viable if you feel like if there's no keeping Mitchell and, you know, if you look at the rest of their roster, there's just not a whole lot of pieces there. Um, then yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something you think about. Like, you know, it's always it can work, it cannot work, but the the concept, you know, is, is uh, has some merit, it, particularly you know as a, as a mid market team where you know you're not you're probably not luring you know a franchise changing free agent to Utah. All right, 
Yep. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that, that's why, like, to me, this seems different than the KD thing because the Nets obviously don't have their picks and, you know, they don't gain anything by getting worse, whereas the Jazz seemingly would. But thank you, yes. For sure, it. for sure. That is a bit, very keen distinction, for sure. And, and the Nets, like we've said time and again on the show, like, they want to compete. They, that's their clear. That's their clear denominator. There, the Jazz, I think, are open to many different alter, alternative avenues that could present themselves. Um, all right, Jeremy, you got any questions for me, or should we just wrap this thing up? No, I think I think we're we've kind of covered a good amount of ground. I uh, I'm going to go back to finishing this game, uh, which I pause. Yeah, time out of your off season. Film grind. Thank you for everyone for tuning in. Of course, of course. We'll be back next week. Um, not specific on the details yet, but I'm going to do a little home and home podcast with Chris Fedor uh, to talk some Cleveland Cavaliers and Colin Sexton and more. Uh, have a good weekend, everyone. Stay safe, stay cool in the heat, and we'll talk to you next week.